Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free. So visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Dr. Tracy Brower. Tracy is the Vice President of Workplace Insights for Steelcase and the author of two books, Bring Work to Life by Bringing Life to Work, and The Secrets to Happiness at Work. She is also a contributing writer for Forbes and Fast Company and an advisor, council member, or board member across a number of organizations spanning workplace and urban design, human resources, facilities management, industrial mathematics, and community support. Prior to all of her current work, Tracy had roles at M&M Mars, Herman Miller, and Magna Donnelly. She has a BA in communications, business literature, and English from Hope College, a master's of management and organizational culture from Aquinas College, and a PhD in sociology from Michigan State University. Tracy, welcome. Good to have you in the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So let's start with your current role. So tell our audience what you do as Steelcase's vice president of Workplace Insights. Oh, I always say I have the best job in the company. It's an amazing company. Not perfect. No company is perfect, but it's a really great place to work. And I get to do research and then really bring research to customers and influencers. Like Steelcase has a long history of doing amazing research on work, workers and workplace. So we have a group that does that. And then I get to do that as well. And then really, I think the most interesting part is like, how do we bring that down to a level of pragmatism and application, right? Like, okay, what do we do about this in terms of designing great work experiences? So that's what I get to do the research, the communication about it, and then the articulation of how it gets applied. Yes. You've done a lot of different things over the years. You know, I mean, your background, you've got HR, you've got human-centric design in there, you've got PhD in sociology. So how are you able to bring all of that together in your day-to-day work? Yeah, that's the best question, right? It's For me, it's all about people, right? Like, how do we think about how groups of people interact and behave? How do we think about how we create the best experiences for people? And interestingly, the furniture industry is a place where we bring all of that together in a very big picture in terms of thinking about human dynamics and behaviors and cultures mm-hmm. and how those get manifest in the cues through the physical space and through our leadership and through our cultures. So for me, people is sort of the the linking attribute of all of those areas of study and practice. There's a ton obviously going on right now, given hybrid and what that really means. Steelcase is a huge player in this industry, which probably most people would know. What are the big trends in workplace design? How are they shaping what what the company is doing? Yeah, I always say this is the best time to be in this industry because 
people are thinking so consciously about why they work and what they do and with whom and for whom they work and where and when and how. And so I think one of the trends is this sort of new awareness of work and this new valuing and prioritizing of how we work. So that's a very interesting part of it. And then hybrid is very much here to stay. A lot of times people are surprised by an office furniture manufacturer saying something like that. But I think hybrid is absolutely not a blip, but a long-term trend. And I think what that does is it really creates the opportunity for us to think about how do we create places that people really want to be together? And what's the why of that question? Like, why would we come to the office? And then what are the reasons that we would work remotely? And and there are good reasons for both of those. And so I think at its best, hybrid really is a both and where we can make some really good choices about when we're together and the things that we do best face-to-face and then those things that we can do best on a remote basis. Yeah. In some ways though, I think, and, and I think this is part of what people are struggling with as I watch people I work with go through this sort of journey towards stable hybrid, whatever it ends up looking like, right? Is you have to think about it more. When you worked remotely, you just got up every day and you logged on, right? When you worked in the office before that, you commuted into work from wherever and you worked in an office and you didn't really have to think about it. Now, you know, it requires more work just to think about what am I more productive doing in the office? What am I more productive doing at home? How do I try and sway my team and the others that I work with to do things that sort of balance along with what I need. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think about that as friction, right? Like there's more of a conscious decision-making process. And so like one of the things that I've talked to customers about is I think we can help people think about that. Like what are the criteria by which I would decide when I'm going to the office? What's my personal preference? What's my team's dynamic? When are we trying to be together in person? What kinds of work do I need to get done that day? And I think it's a misnomer that we would do all of our focused work at home and all of our collaborative work in the office because work has more of a flow to it. Mm. And not everybody can focus brilliantly at home, depending on what their home situation is with distractions and the like. So I do agree that there's more friction. And I think that like companies and leaders and teammates can do a good job to kind of set some guardrails, right? Like I think in some cases it's been abandoned with autonomy, right? Like just come when you want to come and be here when you want to be here. And that's a lot of friction. But if my team and your team work together regularly and we decide, hey, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, we're going to be in the office, that can actually be a really helpful guardrail that removes some of that friction and helps us think about how do we optimize where we're spending our time. Yeah. So it's it, we're, it's just going to take time, I think, for everybody to figure that out for themselves and their teams and obviously within the context of whatever their company is expecting of them. Yeah. I think if anything, it's probably you know, as people have come back into a shared workspace, it's reignited the debate around open from all of the research. I mean, this is what you do for a living, right? So what are the pros and cons of, of open plan? Yeah, this is served in in more of a scientific basis, as opposed to just the, you know, sort of empirical subjective basis. I love your word reignited, right? It's reignited the controversy and all of the thinking about open office. And I think one of the keys is that the best open offices are not all open all the time, right? Like the best open offices actually offer a variety of spaces so that I can do my focused work in an enclave, or I can do my collaborative work in a team setting, or I can do my socializing in a work cafe, or I can get 
spaces where I can feel rejuvenated, or I can get spaces where I can learn in a multitude of ways. So multiple work modes need to be supported in the best offices. So the best offices aren't only all open, but also I think that there is some wonder, not I think, I know there is some wonderful science on the value of face-to-face. And lots of us can build our relationships and be effective with remote and technologically mitigated collaboration. That's great, right? So all good there. And when we're face-to-face, we tend to be more effective at generating ideas and working through ambiguity or solving problems. So when we're working on things that are more complex or problem-solving or speed-oriented, face-to-face tends to serve us best. We also are better at building trust and relationships face-to-face because we have more nonverbal communication that goes on between us. And we tend to build trust through proximity and familiarity. And so we get to see each other kind of through ups and downs. We get to see each other in both task and relationship settings. And so not only is face-to-face better for building trust, but face-to-face tends to be better for building friendships as well, to the extent that we might want friends at work. And face-to-face also tends to be better for innovating and creativity And it also tends to be better for our energy and getting energized by the people that we're with. There's a wonderful sociological concept called the bandwagon effect or emotional contagion. I know contagion Mm. isn't the best word anymore, but those things have been literally scientifically demonstrated that we tend to pick up energy from those around us. And productivity works this way and engagement works this way. There's literally a spillover effect when people around us are productive, when people around us are engaged, we tend to pick up on that as well. So performance also benefits. So face-to-face isn't the only way that we can work together. Open offices aren't the only way that we can work together. But when we have a variety of settings and when we are in person together, there are definitely benefits to that. Yeah. In this over here in London, pretty much everybody sits on the floor in an open plan. There are a few people who didn't want to go to that model, probably fewer than five out of the whole place of a thousand here. I'm sitting at an open desk for the first time in probably 30 years. And it's an interesting experience. It's been a long time for me, but it's great. You hear pick up much more of the vibe of how things are going than you do when you're sitting in the office. You can tell the days that the team is kind of flat. You could tell the days when they're energized and you just see more of it firsthand than you would when you're sitting in an office, even if the door of the office is open, even if you've got a glass window that you know allows you to kind of look out from the office and see things. And so it's been good. I was surprised how easy it was to adapt after all those years of being in an office. Yeah, that's cool. I think you bring up such a good point that you just learn a lot, right? Like you Mm. pick up a lot from other people around you. Even if you're overhearing a conversation by your teammate or you're overhearing something that someone's saying to a customer, right? You're learning about your job and the values and the culture, and you're picking up on all of those cues. And I think another thing that you point to is choice as well, right? Like if I'm forced to be in a certain place and I can't make choices about where I might move about the campus or move about the building for the kind of work that I'm doing, that's probably less helpful. But especially when I can choose, oh my gosh, I've got this thing I've got to work on that's heavy concentration and heads down. I want to go to a place where I can do that more effectively. That kind of choice is really helpful for people. Yeah. So does Steelcase have like the coolest office ever? <laughs> we have really cool offices. We do. <laughs> 
I won't lie about that. Like we should, right? Because we have to be a showroom for, for customers and all of our offices are working offices. So the way that we've designed for ourselves isn't always the way a customer needs it, but it is very cool that you can experience different elements of the environment. And the other thing that we do really well that I think is really smart for customers is to really curate the environment, right? Like update it regularly and study Mm -hmm. what's working, what's not. Oh my gosh, that Southwest corner is really clicking. It's working so well, but that Northeast area, not so much. Let's update that a little bit and getting feedback from employees and having them feel like there's listening going on all the time, I think is part of the success as well. Yeah. I mean, sense that you can influence your environment is certainly like anything else. It's like you feel you have agency over your environment. Mental health been a big topic overall. How's it factoring into the way that you're thinking about workplace design? Yeah, this is so important. I mean, one of the challenges is that there's so many studies right now about how mental health has deteriorated globally. And that is perfectly correlated with more distance from each other. And one of the things that I've been studying is friendship and community and our connections within the community have been reduced, right? Like we get a delivery to our house instead of talking to the person at the checkout, or we order on the app instead of chatting with the barista. And those superficial moments are really important to our happiness. And that's been demonstrated through research. And so Work is occupying an increasingly important role in society and for humans in terms of how we come together. So the workplace, to the extent it is a place that supports friendship and supports connection and supports our choices and supports us feeling empowered and helps us to feel valued as employees, those are all really important aspects of workplace design. And when the design invites us in and makes us want to be present that is really good for mental health because that is the place where we get support from each other. Even introverts, right? Like introverts may need less connections or deeper connections as compared to extroverts, but we all need them for our mental health. And so work is a really important place that we start to get at that need. So your most recent book, you've written two books. Most recent one was called The Secrets to Happiness at Work. So you delved into this topic of happiness in the workplace more generally than just the design of office itself. So share some of the secrets that you, you know, that you cover in that book. Yeah. I mean, one of them is purpose, right? When we have a really clear sense of purpose, that's extraordinarily helpful to our sense of happiness. And it doesn't have to be purpose in terms of solving world peace or world hunger. It can just be the thing that we do well, that we contribute to our team or our family. Connections have a big neon light in terms of the link to happiness, like when we're more connected, when we feel part of a community, when we feel an obligation to others, that's a really big part of happiness. And another really big one that I love to talk about that doesn't get as much press is learning. When we stretch, when we try something new, when we go out on a limb and roll up sleeves, that's very, very correlated with happiness. I mean, we all need the things that we can do easily without thinking so hard about it. We need parts of our day that are like that. But when we're really able to stretch and grow, that's significantly correlated with learning. And so all of those things are part of the work experience, right? Why I'm working and how I matter, the extent to which I make friends at work or just feel connected to colleagues at work. And then the extent to which work is an opportunity to grow my skills, advance my career, learn something new. All of those are part of happiness at work. Yeah. And you make the point that you have to own your own happiness, right? That this is ultimately comes back to you, the individual, but you also describe 
think some myths in the book about things that kind of keep people from taking responsibility for their own happiness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe provide a few examples. Yeah, this is so important. Like, I think we, in our Western culture, we tend to believe that happiness should be all happy all the time. And if it's not all bonbons and butterflies, somehow we're doing it wrong. And in truth, happiness absolutely ebbs and flows, right? Like we can have up days and down days and still have an overall sense of joy and contentment. So that's one of the myths is that we have to be all happy all the time. I think another myth is that if you choose just right, you will always be happy. Like if you choose just the right job, then you'll be happy 100% of the time, for example. And really, you know, all jobs have things that we like and things that we don't. And our best situation is you think about like a Venn diagram, right? Like more overlap is better. What I love to do and what I have to do, more overlap will be better. But it's unrealistic to expect that you would always have perfect overlap. Yeah. And then the other myth that I that you reference is this empowerment myth, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we really can create the conditions for happiness. We don't have to wait around for everything to be right. And I think sometimes we tell ourselves stories, right? Like, ah, oh, when I get that next job, I'll be happy. Or when I get through this really tough project, I'll be happy. Or oh, when we finally get done working with this really difficult customer or this really difficult challenge with a team, then we'll be happy. But really, we can create the conditions for our own happiness. And more that we are empowered and take action, the more likely we are to be happy. The other thing that I would say is that frequently we pursue happiness for its own sake. And in reality, if we pursue the conditions for happiness, we're more likely to be happy than if we're just trying to pursue happiness by itself as its own goal. So those are four myths that are kind of top of mind. Yeah. You you talked about choice a minute ago. How important is choosing the right firm? It's so important, right? Like we need to have that match to culture. And I think sometimes like we might choose a culture or an organization that is not perfectly aligned with us, but we know we can have a tremendous amount of influence. And that is a really great choice. And we need to have a certain amount of alignment to begin with, right? Like if we join an organization that just isn't aligned with our values at all, that won't bode well for our happiness. But I think in that interview process, in that selection process, we're listening for signals about to what extent are people recognized, to what extent are customers part of the process, to what extent do we value the direction of the organization and its mission and leadership, to what extent does the organization offer opportunities for participation, to what extent will we be able to influence within that organization. All of those are really good signals to listen for. And for us to really think about choosing an organization that's aligned with our values and one where we can bring something new and help the organization stretch as well. Apart from those signals and cues, are there are there questions that you find that are particularly helpful for really getting somebody past the sort of corporate speak of this is a great firm and you know down to the reality of what it's like to work there? How do you get at that in more of a questioning way during an interview? Yeah. I- always like to ask questions that are unexpected in an interview. Like, and I always like to ask questions that are kind of about the negative side. You're not looking for the negatives, but you're looking for the learning through the negatives. So tell me about the toughest day that you had at this organization, or tell me about a time that you stumbled or hit a landmine and how your colleagues or your boss handled that. Or tell me about a time that you really felt like you knew what this organization was about? What was the significant event that happened? Or another one that I like to ask is, 
tell me about a person in your organization that you feel really embodies the culture of the organization. Maybe it's Helen. Tell me about Helen. And a lot of times the way that somebody describes that personality is very much the way that the culture is. I think another really good question to ask is, tell me about what gets rewarded in this organization. How do people get promoted and why? That tells you something about the kinds of behaviors and values that the organization values. So I think all of those can be interesting ways to get at the culture of the organization in a little bit different way than just asking straight out. Yeah. And usually when you ask a question straight out, you get, oh, it's a collaborative meritocracy. Exactly. (laughs) People know the right answer. (laughs) It's true. You talk in the book about the fact that people should embrace both stretch and stress. How so? Yeah, right. Stress gets such a bad name all the time. And there's a really great concept called eustress. Interestingly, stress operates on a parabola curve, which is like a lowercase m. So Mm. if you have very, very, very little stress, you'll likely be fairly demotivated. Like, oh, there's just not enough to get you going. Or if you have ridiculous, crazy amounts of extreme stress, that's also super demotivating. So at the top of that lowercase n is kind of the ideal, right? Like you've got enough stress, enough challenge to keep you going, to keep you motivated. There's a really lovely concept called the 15% rule that's been replicated in research over and over again. When you are most motivated, it's typical that you're failing about 15% of the time. If you fail less than 15% of the time, you might say to yourself, I have this, I'm going to go for my next challenge. Or if you fail more than 15% of the time, you might say, maybe this one isn't for me. I'm going to find something that's a better fit. But when you fail just that 15% of the time, that's sort of that situation, right? Like you don't have it figured out. You're still in the game. You're rolling up your sleeves. You're still shooting the baskets, even though you're not making them every time. And that is what keeps you coming back is that little bit of stress, that enough stress, that enough challenge to motivate us. Yeah. People talk about that as being in a state of flow, although I've heard flow defined like a bunch of different ways or sort of the Goldilocks state, right? Not too hard, not too easy, just the right level of challenge. Exactly. Yeah. So well said. That's really true. I mean, one of the things that happens in flow that I think is really interesting is that you become so immersed neurologically. What's happening is you're so immersed in the performance that you're putting out. The part of your brain that worries about vigilance is actually reduced. So you're less thinking about how you're performing or how you're being viewed, and you're more just in the moment of actually performing. And so that's partly what that stress does, right? Is it channels your energy into that, oh, how am I going to do it better? How am I going to solve this challenge? How am I going to solve this problem? So that's part of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, to me, I liken it described to people, there's sort of good, busy, bad, busy, good stress, bad stress. There's a healthy amount of it. Or if you're busy or stressed on the right things, it's a challenge, right? And all of us to some degree like problem solving, right? Otherwise we probably wouldn't be doing crosswords and Wordle and spelling bee and everything else that's out there to entertain our brains on a daily basis. Exactly. Well, and this is a really great point too, that like you want your interests aligned with what your challenges are, right? Like if you give somebody a really, really tough financial challenge, who's not very analytical, that would maybe not be so exciting. Right. Or if you give somebody, I don't know, a team challenge, a challenge of team dynamics, and they're just not really interested in social systems, right? Yeah. So Also, there's that match of like, what are the things that are challenging for us, which may not necessarily be challenging for others. So it's that alignment again. So your earlier book, 
was called Bring Work to Life by Bringing Life to Work. Notably, you say you aren't a fan of the phrase work-life balance, and you prefer to talk instead about work-life fulfillment. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that book title is such a mouthful, right? Bring Work to Life. I think that really the most important thing is that we think about navigating, right? Like we're not balancing because we're not trading off between work and life. Like work gets a really bad rap. I almost feel like there's an assault on work right now. Like less work is better. All work is bad. Quiet quitting is the ideal. Just remove yourself and take as much vacation as you possibly can get away with. But in reality, work is part of a full life. Like Work is the way that we express our skills and our talents. It's the way that we contribute to our community. It's the thing that can get us up in the morning because it's the the reason that we sort of want to exist and make a contribution and express ourselves. So this idea of balancing isn't enough. Like We deserve more than that, right? We deserve fulfillment. We deserve for our work to be part of a full life. We deserve to be reminded of our value to others and our value in terms of how we express our skills and talents. And so that's why for me, it's more about fulfillment. It's more about navigating the demands that we have. It's more about the ebbs and flows of our life stages and how life stage and work make a difference in terms of how we're able to juggle all of it. Yeah. I mean, to some degree, your your point about there being an assault on work, it, it sort of comes from the perspective that work is one, life is one, one plus one is less than two when you add them together, right? Or one plus one is only one, that there's a complete zero sum game to it all. And I guess I'd like to believe that there isn't such an absolute trade-off between what you do professionally and what you do personally. Yeah. I love your language of zero sum. And I love that equation idea because we really want both. And it's super interesting. There's research that when we're happier at work, we tend to be happier in our personal life, right? Like that isn't news. But the other thing that's news to more people is that when you're happier outside of work, you tend to perceive that you're happier inside of work. So you go off and do volunteer work or you're with children or nieces or nephews, or you enjoy time, I don't, I don't know, outside or exercising. Those enjoyable aspects of your personal life actually also impact on your perceptions of your work. So I think it's this like, bigger picture of the whole, right? Like we're looking at a whole experience of our life of which work is a part of which work is an important part. Yeah. Have you seen the Apple TV show severance? Yes. Oh, isn't that interesting? (laughs) I mean, apart from the dark sinister plot aspect of it, just the premise that you can come to work and completely forget about your personal life and you can go home and completely forget about your work life. That part's kind of interesting, but it goes against the whole idea of of integration, giving you more than each of the two things by themselves. Yes. Oh, I think that show is so interesting. It's almost like a sociological study on work and life. And the thing that strikes me in that show is the thing I come away with is just the level of emptiness, right? Like I haven't, true confessions, I haven't gotten super, super far in it. So maybe there's more happening that you're aware of, but like in work, I feel like a really important part of that is getting to know people, right? And we talk about the big game last weekend and we talk about the holiday and we talk about the thing that we're challenged by with our you know, kids or our nieces or nephews. And that brings a fullness to work. And then in my personal life, I talk about, oh my gosh, I learned this really cool thing at work or I did this interesting research or oh, this problem I'm 
challenged with. I love your input on it, family members, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's just a fullness that exists when you can bring work into life and life into work. Like, I don't know. I just deeply believe that. And severance is such a great example of, oh my goodness, how would it be different if we didn't have that texture from the other parts of our life? Right. It's easier, particularly with technology today to be always on or integrated. How do you avoid some of the pitfalls of that? What are some practical tips that you provide? Oh yeah, this is really hard, right? Because I feel like we do a lot of comparison. It's that great quote, comparison is the thief of joy, right? Yes. And I think in work life, we do a lot of that as well. Like you may prefer to have a more containerized view, right? Like you want to start at eight, you want to turn off at five, you want to not turn back on again. Somebody else might prefer a pattern where they, I don't know, they go to the soccer game at two and then they turn back on a little bit later, or they took Friday off and then they're going to make up some stuff that they have to get done on Saturday morning because it works better for them. And I think the key is that we need to have more choice for what works for us and probably less judgment of ourselves and of others, right? So I don't know if I'm catching up on a Saturday morning, that's not necessarily a bad thing if I am not completely overloaded and workaholic, right? And so I feel like some practical tips are to reflect and be really intentional about what works for you to take your laptop into a different room when you don't want to be working, right? Like if it's sitting on the kitchen island and you're walking past it all the time, it's way too easy to just turn back on. I think another practical tip is to be extraordinarily present no matter who we're with, right? Put your device out of sight so that you're not distracted. I think another thing that we can do just in kind of a practical way is to when we're focusing on work, make sure that we're setting an alarm for ourselves so we're taking adequate breaks because that helps our brain health and helps our well-being. So if we are working really hard on something and we're in flow, that's a great thing. And a mental break is a great thing as well. So all of those things I think help us integrate in ways that work for us and don't let work become all-consuming. Because I think to me, integration means you're mixing it in the way that works best for you. It doesn't mean that work is overwhelming your life because that's not the ideal. So what advice would you give leaders who are thinking about how to help their teams with figuring out this work-life fulfillment equation? Yeah. First of all, I think leaders can do their best to find the right navigational strategies, right? Like the, I think sometimes what leaders do is they take on a lot of the pressure. They take on a lot of the tasks and they try to shield their team from those. But what leaders may not realize is the extent to which they're modeling for other people. Even if they don't mean to be models, they don't mean to be all that. People tend to overemphasize leader behaviors and then seek to replicate those. So I think the more that leaders can set their own boundaries and be transparent about them, the better, right? Like, so if a leader is going to take off early to go to yoga class and then turn back on, that's okay to share with the team so that the team knows that that is behavior that works. I think leaders can also be extraordinarily present and accessible. When people experience more empathy in their work experience, they tend to be more innovative and perform better and have better senses of well-being and all that good stuff. So and accessibility are extraordinarily correlated with well-being and positive cultures and great outcomes. Mm. I think another thing that leaders can do is really set very clear expectations and give people feedback, right? Like people want to know that you're paying attention and they want to be held accountable. 
accountability and recognition being two sides of the same coin. And then the other thing that I would say is that leaders can help team members build strong relationships with each other by having people collaborate on tasks, not just by having social activities together. Because when team members have better relationships together, that also creates a great work experience. So it doesn't have to be all about the between the leader and the team member. It can also be the leader helping the team develop strong relationships. And all of those contribute to happiness and work-life fulfillment. Yeah. What about what should a company do at the corporate level? Yeah. I think when companies are extraordinarily clear and communicative, that's really, really helpful. One of the things that's really interesting is the popularity of podcasts has gone crazy over the last couple of years. And some of the hypothesis is that we all have been craving to hear the human voice and craving to feel connected and and communicated with. And so people crave certainty and companies can't always give you certainty, but if they can give you clarity, here's where we're going, here's where we're not sure, here are the questions we're asking, here's what we're learning and how we're adapting to how the world is changing or the competitive Mm -hmm. environment is changing. That clarity is really helpful. Organizations can also be really clear about direction and mission and that real clarity about where we're going and what our corporate purpose is. Organizations can make sure that they've got really clear systems for people to participate, right? So they feel heard. We're getting input both formally and informally through surveys or, I don't know, QR codes in the physical environment or leaders who actually listen and give feedback. Organizations can also be really clear about how they handle disagreement, policies and practices for hybrid work and where we work and how we work. So, really clear guardrails. And then I think companies can also really set in motion systems for learning and adaptability, like making sure that we're able to listen to the market, listen to customers, stay in touch with what our competitors are doing so that they can be as adaptable as possible. I would say those are kind of the five things that would be really helpful for organizations to proceed with. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, we're all going through this sort of new entry into the new world at the same time, right? So nobody's going to have all the answers. Nobody knows how the hybrid environment will settle in, you know, who's going to win the battle of I'm not coming back to the office that's going on in a lot of places at the moment. So it's, we all have sort of have to be patient and just wait to see how things unfold. Yes. Push our patience button. (laughs) We had a couple of friends and they had a son and they used to say, now Garrett, push your patience button. And by goodness, he, he was young enough. He actually would. It was really adorable. Like, oh, I wish it worked that well for me. But I think you're right. We need to be patient. We need to know that like the way that we work is going to be emerging. We need to learn from each other. And I think the other thing is that we need to be also humble about what we don't already have figured out. Like none of us have been through this before. And so right. we can be confident. We can go forward, right, with what we know we do pretty well. And then we just need to stay super open and humble about, oh my gosh, this is what we don't have figured out. And this is where we need to listen to employees, listen to each other, listen to the best research on how do we go forward from here? Yeah, I'm finding that at least with a certain part of the population I work with, that's a very frustrating situation for them because they want to be told what to do almost so it takes it out of their hands, right? And they want the leadership team to have all of the answers and to get it right the first time, which is just unrealistic given the newness of it all. Yes. I think that's such an important point. I actually think we can set expectations about that, right? Like 
do our absolute best with what we know today and make decisions and be really clear about those and say explicitly, these are the things we're still going to be studying. These are the things that may be changing, right? Like how we set up our work environment might change. The hours of work that we expect in the office might change. The ways that we, I don't know, allocate technology solutions may change over time. We're going to be learning as we go, and therefore we need to stay open. It's kind of like the headlights on your car, right? Like if you're making a three-hour drive, the headlights won't shine you all the way there, but they can shine you 100 feet at a time or however far headlights shine. And I think companies can do that too, and leaders can do that. We can talk about, here's what we know today, and here's absolutely the direction that we're going. And now here's what we know next and what we know next, kind of like the headlights on your car. There was a great business leader that used to say, we need to be directionally accurate, even if we don't get every single detail right in the short term. If we're directionally accurate, that can be really helpful. Yeah. And if you've got regular enough course correction to make sure that directionally accurate doesn't turn into over time, very inaccurate, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your backgrounds. You started in HR, done a lot of different things since. How did that progression unfold for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I like to reflect on that. The the very first boss I had was the best boss ever. He like believed in me and he believed in my potential and he gave me lots of leeway. At the same time, he gave me lots of direction and clarity and accountability. And so I think that started to pave the way. And then I just did what I was really interested in. So I started in HR and then I was interested in training and development. So I went in that direction. And then we were starting up a consulting practice for customers, mm-hmm. which was just really new and different, but it was it was still very much about like educating and coaching customers. And then it became even more important in that process because customers wanted things that were evidence-based. So I went in the direction of research. And then it was just all about how do we create great experiences for people based on the research of how we motivate and how we create work situations that work well for people. And so that brought me around, I would say, to like thinking about workplace vitality and then thinking about applied research and consulting and workplace insights. So I I would say that path has been from sort of starting with people and the policies and practices that we support for people all the way to now the research and insights that continue to support the bigger picture of work experience. Yeah. So what have been some of your favorite career moments over the years? Oh, my absolute favorite career moment. We had a team. It was just the most amazing team. Everybody had their own role to play and we were taking risks and we were moving fast and we were serving customers brilliantly. And I will never forget, we had this team meeting and we were just laughing together and Somebody in the meeting said, we have to remember this moment because this moment is not going to last forever. Mm. And it was just this really, really special, like, oh my gosh, really appreciate where you are and what's going on. That was a really cool team moment. And part of it had to do with the risks that we were taking with customers and the extent to which we were able to deliver on some of the promises that we were making, which were putting us out there to a great extent. I would say another really fun moment has been redesigning the work process and the space for our, on a project called Ampersand. It was like not just process, but it was process and culture and place. That was the reason for Ampersand. And we were researching and meeting regularly and listening to employee voices and going down some paths that were experimental and some of them worked and some of them didn't. But those were great times because 
we had so many different people on the team whose voices were kind of intersecting and were insightful in terms of where we went next. So we were just learning and learning and learning and trying and experimenting together and then really able to listen to feedback and course correct where we needed to. Yeah. So today you're involved in a ton of different things. How do you fit it all in? Go back to like, how do you manage that work-life fulfillment? I won't use the balance word. How do you manage that for yourself with all the different things that you have going on? Yeah. I mean, I would say that I, I'm pretty selective about how I spend my time. So Mm. like I, then I'm honored. (laughs) Oh, I'm honored to be with you. I appreciate it. I do what I really love to do. So like, like I don't watch a lot of TV, but I love to write. So I do my writing and then my writing requires me to do a lot of research. And so those end up just kind of going together and feeding Mm -hmm. each other. Or like I spend lots and lots of time talking to customers and sharing insights. And then I'm always learning and listening and asking questions from them. And then their questions turn into, oh, this would be really cool to write an article about and think more about and do more research. So I feel like part of my work-life fulfillment and the way that I navigate all of it is that one thing feeds another thing. So my conversations with customers feed my curiosity, which feeds where the articles will go, which feeds the research that I'll do. And so when it all feeds into each other, and then I don't know, I love to walk. And so I listen and I love to read, right? So I listen to my audible books while I'm walking and I love to spend time with my family. And I don't know, we'll go work out together as a way to spend time together. So I feel like when you can combine some of the things that you really love and when they feed each other, that gives you both dimensionality and it actually gives you efficiency, right? Like you get to do more cool things all at the same time. Well, it's when the whole becomes more than the sum of the parts, right? Yes, exactly. On a a, a bigger scale, I think, than what we were talking about earlier with just work life, right? It's sort of the different dimensions of work and the different dimensions of life and how they all kind of feed together. Yes, I love that. That's a great way to express it. What are the strengths that you draw on across all of these different things? What are your particular strengths? I think a strength of mine is just curiosity and really Mm -hmm. liking to learn. And I feel like this is going to sound like an oxymoron, but I almost feel like a strength is humility, right? Like, (laughs) let, let me be confident about my humility, right? But I just feel like learning from others and asking questions and being curious about other people's perspectives is just something that gets me really excited and learning new things gets me really excited. And I feel like that's a strength in terms of connecting and building relationships and then a strength in terms of where that takes me and and what I get to advance in terms of my own ideas based on that curiosity. Yeah. What have you worked over the years to develop and what are you working on developing now? Oh my goodness. I feel like I've worked to develop so many things. A lot of times I'm maybe more open and I could probably be a little bit more opinionated. So I probably need to work on that. And I've never been accused of that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. I'm so glad you shared that. That's really great. Or that you don't share it even better. You're the person I can learn from on that. I feel like too, I can always learn better how to be more deliberate in my processes. Like I think I move pretty quickly through ideas And I think when I go deep, those are really great opportunity to learn even more. So I think it's that me finding that balance between when I go deep and when I go broad Mm -hmm. and how to make sure that the curiosity I have doesn't keep me running too fast to see the details. I guess it's sort of like 
taking time to smell the roses or smell the flowers or whatever that expression is, right? Like if I'm running too fast, I just see a field of beautiful color when I'm passing by the flowers and I need to probably stop more often and slow down and I need to learn to meditate. That's what I need to do as well. (laughs) All a theme. Well, it's, you know, I mean, you talked earlier about being present, right? You know, you can look at a field of flowers as you're racing by in the car on the highway and you just see a sea of color, but you don't, to your point, you don't really stop to slow down and look at individual flowers and the components of those parts of those individual flowers and the space in between those flowers and all of the things that just get lost when you're rushing through. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Our son is in in college and he was home for the weekend and he met, I learned that he meditates regularly. I was like, wow, that's really cool. All the coolest people meditate. And I said, well, why do you meditate? And he said, well, life can get going pretty fast sometimes. And it's really smart to slow down. Yeah. I just thought, oh my gosh, like wisdom from this 20 year old. That's great. I need that. It's good. I I find with my kids are in their mid twenties, the two younger ones, and they got exposed to aspects of psychology and sociology in a much deeper way, certainly than I did when I was growing up. So what do the next few years hold for you from a career perspective? Oh gosh. You know, I'm the most boring person you'll ever talk to because I really like to do what I'm doing now. So I hope I get to do more of it. Like I really, I love the company I work for. I really enjoy my job. I've got a great boss. I love my writing. I hope I get to continue to do more of the same, which just sounds really, really stagnant, but I feel like it's more interesting every day and it's different every day. And so I hope that I get to keep that up. Well, you can continue to learn and grow without making a radical change, right? That's exactly right. Yep. It's all about, right? The spider web versus the ladder in terms of where you go. So it's great. Or the squiggly careers, the careers some people like to call it, right? Yes, absolutely. I like that too. Last question. Any advice you would give your younger self or people who are listening in terms of how they should think about their careers? Yeah, I think I would give my younger self advice to worry less. Like, Mm. I think I worried too much. I think I was more intense than I should have been in terms of trying to do my best and trying to work hard and trying to hustle, right? I think I, I think I was very signed up for hustle culture. And I think I would just really worry less and know that it's all going to work out. And for others, I think I would say to really, really remind yourself of your own capabilities and your own empowerment, kind of that idea of, like, don't wait for the conditions for happiness to be right. Really create those. Because I feel like we don't empower ourselves enough. I think like sometimes we don't give ourselves enough permission to do the big thing that we want to do. So yeah. that's the advice I would give myself and others. Great. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. It's been good catching up and hearing more about what you do and the world of workplace design and some of the things you covered in your two books. So thanks, Gracie, for doing this today. Thanks for having me. I super appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Take care. I'd like to thank Tracy for joining me today and spending some time discussing the world of workplace design, work-life fulfillment, happiness, and some of her own journey. If you'd like more regular insights, you can become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter, follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. 
We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.